Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. Episode 12, American Mysticism. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have an old-time friend, Christopher Lawrence Garner. I'm very excited to speak to him today. Uh, We are going to talk about our personal journeys together as friends, as philosophers, as, you know, people on the spiritual path. And I'm very excited about um, everyone out there learning and hearing the lessons and insights that my buddy Chris here has to offer. Christopher, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Chris, we met um, in, what, 1999, 2000, in University of Massachusetts, Boston. Uh, I was studying psychology and religion at the time. What, what was your major? At the time, I was majoring in uh, ethics, social, and political philosophy that had a focus in philosophy of law uh, with a double major in philosophy, classic philosophy, and a minor in economics. Exquisite. And um, I remember, uh, yeah, meeting you some through some mutual friends and um, – you know, as they say, the rest was history. We had this uh, kind of instant connection. I think we were both drawn to our our witty sense of humor, our sarcasm, and uh, we were already, you know, uh, throwing uh, intellectual punches at each other uh, within the first week. Would you say that's true? Um, you know, I don't know if that was true. I think we. One of the things I've always valued about our relationship is um, we don't take intellectual punches at one another. We take intellectual punches at one another's ideas. Okay, what's the difference? Grace, <laughs> you know, um, right? I mean, uh, I've always said that I've never been a person who uh, believes in politics, and because I discuss, you know, uh, philosophic ideas a lot in my personal conversations with people, they'll always say to me, "Well, you you always have a political opinion," and I say, "No, I have an opinion on policy, not on politics. Politics is wanting to be right." When you go into the conversation, policy is wanting to find the best answer, right? Um, and I think that when it comes to religion and, and philosophy, um, some of those same principles translate or apply. Right. And um, would you say you were born and raised in a religious or spiritual household? You know, what's re- that's a great question. Um, no, um, but yes. Um, so, you know, I don't – before I was eight, I really don't recall uh, us going to church or really even talking about God. We might have, but I don't remember it. Um, you know, I do remember uh, we were raised Presbyterian when we moved um, – you know, when, from the time I was like 12 on. Um, my introduction was kind of uh, through traditional Protestant, no special secret sauce, just kind of mainline Protestantism, you know, simple church with a wooden cross, you know, uh, people who were strong in faith and had a good community. Um, their motto is always reforming. So one of the things I like about Presbyterianism is that um, they have this continual questioning. Uh, the foundation of their belief is that um, because um, God is truth and because uh, God is unwavering, no human mind that has a question could ask a question that would undermine God. Only your questions could undermine was other people. Wow. 
you know, and that came out of that Protestant Reformation, you know, sort of a, a tearing down of structure, you know, a tearing down of uh, a response to the Vatican. Um, so, you know, and then what was funny is when we met in college, some, you know, a few years later, um, you know, I was 22 when we met and uh, I was a little bit older than you were. Um, and, and I remember that at that point, I probably would have described myself as an atheist or at least an agnostic, um, somebody who I was really sort of, um, I had got, I'd found Eastern religion and that kind of contradicted Western thought. And I found myself sort of in the middle and almost a religious, you know, uh, just kind of, you know, more focused on what made my, my spirit grow, uh, what made my heart warm, these sort of, uh, ideas that, were spiritual in their language. Uh, and, and after I got out of college, um, and I kind of, um, really found myself practicing more Eastern thought, um, and kind of getting into that. But then ironically, I've been thrust into this, uh, deeply, uh, Trinity. And I was a practicing, practicing Unitarian for four or five years, a universalist, um, which I still think is really how I would self-identify. I really think if, if, out of all the and, – and I would also include, obviously, uh, our time together, I can't underestimate in my um, – you and I were friends when my mom was at 9-11, right? Right. Uh, and, and so how could, how could you and I be friends in that time and not have Islam be such a big focus of our conversation? And to this day, I'll often speak it from a novice's standpoint – about what little I do know compared to, um, you know, obviously a scholar, you know, but what I do know about Islam and its extension of how it's an extension or a reformation or a, a ceiling, right, is the phrase that we use in Islam is the ceiling of the prophets right after Christ. Correct. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've done the, a big walk um, and now here I am working in a company that's deeply Christian and still finding myself comfortable there. I've been blessed. Yeah, that's that's really. Um, I, I remember you certainly had your own um, ins and outs with different faiths and philosophies. Um, couple couple of questions. One, um, which Eastern philosophies were you uh, exploring and interested in? And second, uh, would you say there was a point where you no longer identified as an agnostic or an atheist, so to speak? I, I remember one story that sticks out for me was. When you were in a philosophy class in university, one of your professors was very impressed with your participation and your ideas. And at that time, I think you did um, lean more towards this idea of a divine um, cause for, for, for reality. And he thought that was kind of weird because, of course, you know, oftentimes atheism is synonymous with being an intellectual nowadays, right? It's like people that believe in a creator are, you know backwards or, or, or absurd and outdated. I, I, exactly it's like obsolete you know it's like oh my god you still hold on to these myths and i remember the story you told me you're stuck in spiritual you know, spiritualism 1.0 Right. 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 And uh, one of the one of the most profound things you said, and I still share it with people is, you know, the professor asked you once he pulled you aside after class. He said, hey, Christopher, you know, with all your brilliance, I'm surprised that you still believe or consider a God. And why is that? He asked you and you told him one word. Do you remember what your answer was? No, I don't. What was it? Women. No, that's true. That's true. 
<laughs> which is which is which is fascinating for my age right yeah but it's also very fascinating because you know recently i saw an interview with richard dawkins and you know it was one of his channel on youtube um he basically when he was being asked questions from the audience like what are some of the biggest problems or holes with you know evolutionary um theory and one of the things that he actually said was we have no explanation or understanding why the human race evolved to have a male and a female. That's still a huge mystery, right? We have no idea. Like, why didn't we just have self-replicating organisms or, or human beings, right? Um, and that was one of the things that he brought up. And it reminded me of that time when, for you, the fact that women exist and the complementary forces physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually that we per, we have with the other was enough of, of uh, evidence for you at the time, which I which I thought was um, really profound. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. And I think at the time, you know, being in my early 20s, you know, obviously that's a very um, romantic and youthful way to see the flowers of of, of the spirit of life, right? From a human, from an anthropocentric standpoint, right? As a young man, you know, being able to witness women in their beauty in the, in that age where you're blossoming, right? You're really finding out who you are and getting your legs under you in life. And, you know, obviously the, there's a deep seated, we can get into all the reasons that, you know, um, so many people are attracted to women, even women themselves, right? Um, you know, um, they're certainly special, you know, um, I think that they stand apart from men in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I think they're, they're really the superior being of sorts. I'll give you a great story. One time my son said very, not too long ago, and you know, Dalton is apple doesn't fall far. And, uh, he said, Hey dad, he goes, you're in charge. And I said, no, I'm not. He goes, but dad, you do all the work. And I said, right. If I do all the work, who must be in charge? And he goes, Mom? I said, yeah, because if I was in charge, she would do all the work. <laughs> you know? And uh, he started laughing, you know. And I think that it, it, my, my journey has taught me that ser uh, servant leadership is really the focus of what I think God wants from us. Uh, I think that um, one of my pastors, um, Aliyah Kramer, uh, who is uh, the UU pastor in First Parish Groton, um, shout out. Um, she, uh, quoted, I think it was, uh, I forget who it was, but she gave me a lecture and uh, she talked about how, um, when the universe was made, it was a mirror that was shattered and that we as humans are designed to be in a, a phase of repairing and bringing back together those pieces, um, you know, to be a force for unite, for, for, for coming together, uh, for fixing things. And that's why we have that need. Um, so yeah, you know, it's easy to see why a young me would find women to be, you know, the center, but I feel like with maturity, you know, I often think about the fact that I just turned 40. Well, not just, but I'm finally 40, right? Congratulations. Thank you. And I know that we had talked when I was younger and we were younger about how, uh, in Islam, and I tell this to so many people that they say wisdom can't be attained in men till 40. Um, and I really feel, or at least that was the peak, something along those lines. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but, you know, for me, I can see that, you know, um, not just because I'm 40, but I get 
as we get older, we have a deeper understanding. Those of us who seek wisdom when we're youthful, I feel like we want ideas. Right. Uh, um, as if something that we're going to hear or something that we're going to say is going to explain or justify or make clear, you know, all these eternal questions. Again, my son the other day, uh, Dad, we're, 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 we're alive in us, right? Yeah. And, and we live on the earth. Yep. And the earth is in space. Yes, son. Dad, what's space in? Right. You know, and, and we get to be 35 years old, you know, and 40 years old, and those questions don't get answered. The, and, and, Subhanallah. And, you know, and, and so when you're young, you're looking almost like a child swimming in a pool for the first time, reaching out for something to hold on to, something, something to, to keep you afloat in this sea of, uh, of, of ignorance, right, of almost being blind, you know, um, and at the same time, too, you're, you're so young and you're so perceptive that all these ideas come rushing in. And boy, I remember how music affected me when I was that age, you know, how a song could just run to the very tips of my toes, you know, and now I can get back there with music, but it's not the same, you know, the same way that um, you're so sensitive and you can and when people give you these ideas and sometimes they're ideas you had on your own or ideas that you heard that you hadn't that you wanted to hear more about. Somebody comes along and gives you that spiritual food, I like to call it, you know, that 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 spiritual nourishment, you know, and and that idea just immerses you. You know, you become washed in it, right? Because it's so fresh and you're so vibrant. Um and I think that as time goes on, that wisdom is is deeper, uh, almost like an oaky barrel. You know, uh, it gets to be aged, you know, and so that's my response. No, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, like as you said. So, yeah, in Islam, there's this idea of when you reach the age of 40, you've officially left what would be considered youth, right? Um, or or, or like a young man. So it's almost the beginning of the real path or phase of wisdom, so to speak. Um, how would you define wisdom? In your in your own definition, perhaps perhaps the wise man would say you can't define it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, and I think the best you can get. I would agree with the wise man, not to be one, but I would agree with the wise man. Um, and I think the closest you can get to it is either analogy or you know uh, simile. You know, you can, you know, someone once said to me, I don't know what God is, but I know what he isn't. Right. Which is a f big focus on a lot of theology, right? Negative theology in the Vedic traditions and Islam, certainly. There's all this, this is what God is not to help you get a better sense of what he might be, right? In, in, in approximation of your consciousness, right? right? And I even believe that we're, uh, I believe personally that, you know, and, I, and I'm, I, you know, I respect everyone's right to pursue their faith. I would never seek to change anyone's faith, um, only to encourage it. Um, but in my faith, personally, I believe we're hardwired with that. I believe that spiritually we're born with um, a plane that we as humans are not tapped into, that we have, we're supposed to be tapped into. Um, I believe that not only God, but uh, our interstellar, uh, our stellar ancestors, right, the bigger scheme of life, 
the the people the thi- I mean I, I personally have come to accept that in the Old Testament they talk about the watchers and in in the New Testament um, it really you know those those metaphysics aren't touched on as much and and my reading of the Quran you know which really came from being friends with you right you know it talks about the jinn and the, and the unknown the angels the unseen the seven yeah unseen realms yeah yeah and let's be honest the New Testament doesn't really touch on that. The New Testament is almost entirely, in my opinion, um, a social a, 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 a social discipline. It, it's about truth and justice and social action um, and egalitarianism and equality. And um, um, for me, in Western religion, the story that surrounds Jesus Christ is about human beings recognizing uh, love over fear. That's our transition from the guilt-driven fire and brimstone of the Old Testament, you know, with such restrictions on it and, you know, uh, sentences for death that now we would find, right, even, you know, uh, you know, in Leviticus, it says if you cut the hair on your temple, you know, you should be put to death, right? You know, so these very kind of rigid formed laws into into love. And then I'm, and then I you know I really have a profound and deep respect for um, the message that's carried by Muhammad, you know, um, and his criticism of Christians for lifting up Christ to a godlike figure, right? Um, there's a lot of you know uh, he presents a lot of valid questions and, and, and great perspectives, and you know invented social security, right, as we know it for the most part. Um, where he said that the young should take care of the old, you know, it really kind of was a, a, you know, it was found in pieces in the Old Testament, but I think there it was more social and structured. But anyway, I digress. With To answer your question is wisdom, I personally believe, uh, is the acceptance of insignificance. It, it's... Um, Every day that I wake up, I think to myself, wow, another day. You know, wow, another day? Wow. Another chance, another gift, another opportunity, another moment. Well, you know, I heard it's kind of cheesy, but I love it. I use it all the time. I say, listen, today is such a gift that they call it the present. Right? I remember, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know... It is the present, and I and I think that sometimes what we're all really battling, especially, and you know, I could we could really go on so long about all these interconnected things, but the way that we're moving to a society of abundance, um, I think, is really creating a lot of conflict for us. Um, How so? We we our economic systems and our strategies are all built out of scarcity. Um, they're all built out of. A sort of a tacit acceptance that there merely isn't enough supply for everyone's demand, right? I mean, it's where the Protestant work ethic comes from, and it's evident in all dogmas. You know, this connection between hard work and reward. Um, and you know, my time at working now at a at a at a, at a Christian based company, um, you know, the CEO has taught me. That in his opinion, the reason the world fails is because they see it as a transactional plane that operates in physical swapping and that in, rea- and that in reality, the world is a spiritual plane. 
and that when you operate from the spirit and you operate from intention and you approach and you know you understand with humility grace and love that literally the the universe opens like an orchid right and that takes you back to buddhism right the the right the flower blossoming um and and so wisdom is accepting the fact that you're never going to know and not just saying you're not going to know really really that you don't know and that you have to listen to your inner peace that that voice that god built us all with whatever we're supposed to be there's a reason we can feel one another whatever we're supposed to be there's a reason that we work in social groups um you know we're facing a lot of pressure from the society of abundance because we've attached moral equivalency to works, not grace, right? We talk about how, uh, does this person deserve a second chance? Well, I mean, I think that's the whole point of grace, right? Is yes. And, and, and at what point do you not deserve another chance? You know, I understand there are people who are dangerous and that's, that's a separate situation. But in our daily lives, you know, um, when we give the people around us the permission to make mistakes and we show the graciousness because we were granted this day through grace, not works. We, we didn't all of us and none of us did anything to deserve today. You didn't earn it. You're not entitled to it. You're, you know, why do we say inshallah, right? Let it, right? God willing, because what a valuable lesson, right? I mean, you know, uh, we say it because it teaches us to remember that we're not guaranteed anything. And we lost some family friends, uh, lost two of their children in two years that were younger than myself. Oh, my and um, they were about our age and, you know, it was very recent. And we went to this this funeral and, and, and the people there were really distraught, obviously. The second funeral in two years for a child, you know, that was a grown adult, but still far too young, far too young. And two of them, right? And of course, there are stories of people who, you know, have it far worse. But, but that's not the point because all loss is loss, right? Or no matter how much it makes sense, it's still loss. Uh, because it's not rational. And so they asked me to say something, and I said, uh, the best I can tell you is this. You're all going to sit around and try to understand why. You're going to ask yourself why. You, you, how did this happen? Why Why do these people, did, did something they do that the parents did? Is it something the kids did? Is it Right. Are we being punished? Yeah, it's like you want an answer. Yeah. Of course. It's hard. to make. We want to make meaning of it. We always want to make a meaning of it, yeah. And what I said to them was, it's never our place to understand. Because everything we have, even the things we are most secure in, our family, these things we can't imagine anyone taking from us, in part because we feel like it, it couldn't happen, and in part because we can't exist if it does. Right. We, 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 you take away the family or you take, and that can mean a lot of things for a lot of people. It doesn't have to mean blood. doesn't have to be, you know, traditional marriage, family, those things, those people that bind us, those people that uh, carry us through rough water. Right. 
I said at the funeral, I said, even those things that you so think you own, what you need to understand is everything we have is borrowed from the heart and mind of God. Borrowed. Yes, borrow. It's like a loan, right? And and this idea, for example, is also um, expressed in Islam, the deen of Islam, right? Which means the, the religion of Islam. But the word deen, Chris, actually is connected to the word which means debt. So we're indebted to God because he gave us the gift of consciousness and existence. And this also, this idea that you find in Judeo-Christianity and even Islam, this idea of you're a slave or servant of God, right? Now, of course, this can trigger a lot of people, but when, you know, kind of what you're talking about here, it reminds me of that idea. It's like, yeah, it's like, I don't really own anything. And if I don't really own anything, I don't have the right to feel entitled or ultra attached because as we know also in Buddhism, it teaches us that our pain and suffering is proportionate to our attachment to those things or those ideas, which half the time is, a, is an illusion. Correct. And, and that's where, you know, um, I think that we end up in a position where we feel that loss like you're talking about from an attachment. And, and when you accept the fact that, um, again, the best I can give you is that wisdom or enlightenment is the acceptance of insignificance. Um, and I think that when we're in that discussion of debt, the way you're talking about it, one of the things I seek to challenge or change is that um, we're not supposed to pay God back by doing things the way we used to. We're supposed to pay, to pay God back by reaching our highest potential. Just like, uh, look, uh, Kareem, I know your family for years. I know uh, how important their success is to you. My parents the same way. You know, um, you know, obviously they were different people and different faiths and different cultures and different languages and different whatever. But in the end, that universal parental right? That universal parental sentiment is there as you and I care for our children, right? We want them to be successful. Um, you know, when we're in that position for God, when you give your children the opportunity to go to school, you know, what do you say to them? Right. Um, listen, and I'm not in this position. I don't send my kids to private school, but I could imagine the conversation would sound a lot like when I signed them up for soccer, right? Hey, uh, I'm going to give you the opportunity to play soccer, but I, I really need you to give your best and make every practice and go to every game because I don't want to embarrass us or have you embarrass yourself or, you know, um, I, I don't want to pay out the money for this and then not have it be used. You know, are you going to go through? Oh, absolutely, Dad. I'm going to go out and give it my best and I'm going to I'm really going to try to hone my craft and I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. Right. Sometimes I feel in our faith and our religious constructs, we seek to pay God back by. And rather than holding on to moral truths, we try to act like people who were seen as moral when these things were documented. Mm. Is it kind of like we focus too much on being or appear, uh, excuse me, appearing religious rather than actually being religious, being an italics, existential? 
sincerity, really, versus I'm fulfilling this religious uh, prescription and symbolism and checklist and social repertoire aspect. Is that kind of what you mean? Like, it's not about, I'm doing this because God told me to, but I actually, maybe part of wisdom and, and sincerity and humility is realizing that the very things that God commanded us to do or guided us to do is because part of the journey is for us to realize on our own individual path that this is good in and of itself for us. Because, like, obviously, if you really believe in God as, you know, let's say it's described in Islam or even, you know, um, other ideas, theistic ideas, obviously God doesn't need you and me to pray to him, right? It's not going to make any difference in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence or reality if you and I decide I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore right it's not going to change that reality or reality as it is so who who are we really doing it for do you know who it hurts most you know who it hurts most ourselves no the people who love us and how is that different from it hurting ourselves and, and the people who love us why do you make that distinction um in my mind um it's the difference of um you're not because sometimes when we hurt ourselves, um, we hurt ourselves in a way that um, we hurt ourselves in a way that we want to. Um, when we're filled with negativity or our spirit is challenged or we feel closed in, we really, uh, I believe, in, and I mean, I think back to what we could talk about ad hominem. I mean, I mean, ad nauseum, right? Um, ad infinitum, right, would be that, uh, you know, I believe that the social maladies we see are a result, and there's a ton of scientific evidence to support it, right, broadly speaking, that people who feel left out, who feel powerless, actually end up self-destructing, right? Um, it's evident in suicide rates. It's evident in um, war-torn nations, right? When people are left in this stressful state of need, right? Um, they result to this animalistic sense of destruction, um, you know, and that's where addiction comes from, right? I mean, it, it's that self-abuse. It's that piece of us that I, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, but if people really saw me, they wouldn't like me. Because I, I think I really see me and I don't really like me. It's these pieces of ourselves that we don't expose. Um, and so when we inflict harm on ourselves, it's sort of willing, but yet the people around us didn't sign up for that. And we put them in a position, right, to pick up the pieces and deal with the pain because not only are they feeling it and they're now voiceless, you've given them a sense of voicelessness. Right. Because they want you to stop what you're doing. And I think about this with addiction, like alcoholism and drug abuse and right. And um, and and crime, you know. People want it to stop, but when you don't do it, you know, you you hurt them more. And I think about cases of suicide and domestic violence and, you know, all sort of the the, the social ills that we have. Right. And that's but but that is that is, you know, I think only strengthens the point I'm making, which is. You suffer and you're the one that oppresses yourself and this has a ripple effect or ramification where you now di directly and indirectly oppress and burden 
those around you, right? Those who love you. And that's why every individual, um, I would argue, has that responsibility, right? To heal, to evolve, to transform. Because if everyone just took that seriously, society and families would, um, inshallah, be healthy, right? And maintain prosperity and future uh, sustainability, at least theoretically. Listen, I had a conversation recently, and this was ironic, sadly, this was just before uh, Charlottesville. And there was a detective who had come in, uh, who um, I, I got to know through a friend, and he and I sat down and we talked about public policy and policing and the cycle of violence. And I tried to explain epigenetics and how we had poverty was a cycle that was in you know, that was supported by crime and so on and so forth. And I said to him, I can assure you the group I'm most concerned about is white nationalists. Said so in a recent survey, 72% of all sheriff and police departments nationally reported that white nationalists were their number one security concern. It wasn't that, it wasn't but two weeks before Charlottesville. Um, and that and that's a tendency. So and these people claim to be Christian, right? They're devout Christians. They're deep Southern Christians, right? Um, my point is, and I say that because I don't want to. I will not participate in the narrative implicitly or otherwise. I will not leave it open that uh, Islam is the key source of terror. I believe uh, greed is the key source of terror. For me. I feel like we need to, at the Unitarian level, that relating that to God was God, it was held up, and sort of asking of all of ourselves, how do we overcome? And I had people in our congregation who were at our church week, weekly who identified as Muslim, who identified, who identified as Jewish. You know, and the one older couple would say, well, like literally we would have a Seder dinner, right? And then we would also, uh, you know, have uh, we wouldn't do it full on, but we would have a two or three day fast for Ramadan. You know, we would learn from Buddha. We would learn from stories of Christ. And we came out of a Judeo-Christian background. So it was always more in that area. Um, but it really helped me see that. You asked me when we opened about my personal walk in faith. Um, and. I know that there are a lot of people that are going to be upset, but I ask the question, how do we pay the debt to God? Is it by acting like the people who taught us what we should do? Or is it finding a way to do what we should? Wow, man, that was deep. How do we pay the debt to God? Is it by acting like the people who taught us what we should do? Or is it finding a way to do what we should? I love that. You know, and I think one of the most challenging points of our time is, and it kind of brings us full circle, right, is how do we bridge that gap in a global society where everyone's religion says that their way is the only way? You know, that's a real logistical question. That's a, and I got news for you, that's a dangerous question. Right. People get uncomfortable with that question. No one wants to talk about that question. And so and that's what really led me to Unitarian Universalism at one point so well was um, 
it, it ascribed God to God and really stated that all the religions was were subservient to God. And what I found really exciting about that was here was the tail end evolution of such a journey for me, right? Um, and it led me back to like the first of the commandments. Thou shalt have no gods before me. Thou sh- or thou shalt not have uh, engraven images, false idols. There's a few translations. Yeah, it's basically the same thing as the Shahada in Islam. There is no God but God, right? In other words, put, don't make anything else an idol, whether it's yourself, an organization, an institution, intellectual constructs. Bring it back to the essence of all reality, which is the divine, right? So that's, that's, that's a, a similar uh, position. So I, I looked up the first the commandment, and um, according to Wikipedia, at least, um, when asked which is the greatest commandment, the Christian New Testament depicts Jesus paraphrasing the Torah. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Beautiful. So it, it wasn't number one, but it was the most important, right? Yeah, and the second passage is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So the first one is divine connection and relationship, and then how you relate to humanity, essentially. Right. Correct. And what's really interesting is back to um, a, a Dr. Aaliyah Kilmer, I believe. I know she's a reverend. I believe she's a doctor. Uh, Groton, Massachusetts, First Parish. She is the one that gave a sermon and really opened my eyes to a writing that someone else had put out, which had said, when you hear the sentence, love thy neighbor as thyself, um, she said, what you think about is that that means the golden rule, which is do unto thy neighbor as you would want done unto you, right? She said, but it's not the golden rule. It's different. She said, because if you're going to love thy neighbor as thyself, what it implies is that you first have to love thyself in order to love thy neighbor. Because it's, it's love thy neighbor as thyself. Right, so you have you need the reference point of self-love and self-compassion first. Right, we cannot give away that which we do not have an abundance of. Correct. So if we're not taking care of ourselves, if we're not identifying when our ego is creeping into our thoughts, if we're not identifying when we're making ourselves or an organization or a group speak for us, God gave us an active mind and an active voice. And I, I, I think about the people who I most admire in the world. And I think the people who are going to leave the greatest mark on civilization are the people who managed to create, who managed to spread not God's word, but God's love. And they managed to do it in a way that doesn't include violence. I believe that nonviolent spiritual development through social inclusion is really where we are supposed to be going. You know, Chris, I mean, I love what you're saying, and I think it sounds beautiful, but, you know, the reality is, can you really have a world where there is no aggression, no greed, no violence? Can you remove evil? I don't know if that's ever possible in this world, or else we have paradise and utopia, which is the very thing that I think all humans crave. Isn't that what we started with? But isn't that what we started with? You mean we're all trying to get back to, to the Garden of Eden? Of course. And the crazy part is I believe we've actually managed through technology, innovation. We actually, for the first time since 
we tasted the apple from the tree of knowledge, right? I mean, if you think about that parable, right, what was it that they ate? Was it the apple? Was it the fact that it was forbidden? No, it was that we were asked to remain ignorant and faithful, and we ate from the tree of knowledge to seek what God knew. And ever since then, we've tried to pursue that knowledge because we spoiled the ignorance in the Garden of Eden. And, we're, and we had abundance and simplitude, right? It was functional. And we questioned it. We made it complicated, as Krishnamurti would say, with our cognitive thought. We tried to tear it apart. We tried to understand something beyond us. And for that, we destroyed the garden. I'm wondering if it's only through that pursuit of the fruit from the tree of knowledge that we're able to redeem ourselves. And can we reinstate a place where there's enough clean water, enough safe shelter, enough space, enough civilization, enough sustainable food, enough sustainable energy that everyone gets to meet a baseline of human existence merely for the right of being here? Right, and that recognizing God, if God exists, it follows that God also chose to have everybody here that is here, because nothing comes from without God. But, you know, what's interesting is the Quranic account of that story is a little different, and I'm going to share that with you because I think it would be an interesting um, uh, perspective. So, similarly, Adam and Eve were commanded not to eat from a particular tree, but in the Quran... God actually says that he taught Adam all the names and all the knowledge. So Adam already had all the knowledge. And in fact, the tree that he was commanded not to eat from, and God knows best, was actually the tree of mortality. Because, excuse me, immortality. Because when Satan comes to Adam in the Quranic narrative, he says to him, you know that tree that God doesn't want you to eat from? This is because paradise is made only for immortal souls like the angels, and you're not immortal, my friend. So if you really want to be here in this top-notch real estate of paradise, which, by the way, God said, enjoy paradise, enjoy it with your wife, but don't go near that tree, Shaitan or Satan convinced Adam to eat from the tree so that he can maintain eternally in paradise. So it's almost that angle of also the reason why we became forgetful was because of our existential anxiety of facing death and losing the, the presence of paradise and being that close to God, which is also a very interesting angle and, and I think builds off of some of the points you're making here. Yeah, and I also think what's what you uh, to compound that, I would agree with everything you said, and I would add that there's also the element of greed in there, right? Right. We're back to greed. Right. It, it wasn't good enough for you to live in the Garden of Eden with your wife and stay away from the tree. You wanted to be there forever. You wanted it all forever. And I think that's what greed really is, you know, um, and, and listen, you asked a really important question, um, and I think it deserves revisiting. Is it, you said to me, but Chris, is it really possible to create that world? Right. I don't know, but if you're going to choose to make mistakes in life either way, what are you working towards? What, what are you working towards? A sustainment of the status quo? How many... How many – let's get real for a minute, okay? You have any idea how morally injured I, I am by the notion that I turn on Twitter and there are 
I don't know how you say it in Arabic, my friend, but God forgive me for for mentioning it. You know, there are families picking up dead children. That's so horrible. In Syria, yeah. in Yemen, Burma, and, and these are yeah. aren't, everywhere. Right. These people aren't just starved. I mean, Palestine, even in cases Israel, even in cases now in Europe, and and it's not just about the terror. It's about the violence, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a very true story. It's very dear to my heart. Okay, very true story. We were in Massachusetts shortly after the Boston bombing, and I was living in a town next to the town where uh, they were holding the young man they captured in the prison. And it was a party, and everyone was drinking and. They were going around talking about how upset they were at him and describing what they would do to him if they had the chance. And when they came to me, they said, what would you do? And I said to them, honestly, I would apologize to him. Wow, really? Right. And they said to me, Why, what? Why would you apologize to him? And I said, because it's clear that he was so left alone, so isolated, that he didn't understand that in this act he would be hurting himself. We left him in a place where he, he couldn't understand. Yeah, he became so otherized that he became disconnected from realistic consequences, reality, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's uh... I mean, forget the consequences. Forget the jail. Forget whatever the punishment is. Just the notion that you're using violence. Right. You, you, kill, you kill yourself when you resort to unhealthy uh, violence and aggression. Right, and, and I said to them... Now, that doesn't mean that what he did was okay, and it doesn't mean that I would let him out. It means I would explain to him that we would never – you'll notice I didn't use his name because I refuse to use the name of anyone who uses violence. I believe that it empowers those people. It's very hard for me. I see it in U.S. history. I see it in – it's very hard for me. I will not – you know what I mean? Not from my mouth. Not from my mouth. Not from my mouth. Um, yeah, you don't want to it, affirm or enable that. Uh, exactly. Enable. The yeah. People who want to do it to be seen or to be famous or to be empowered for the wrong reasons, I think we have to give them the sense of being a shutout the way that they make the people who uh, don't have economic and political power feel. We have to turn that back around. And, and, and I will resist not evil, right? Um, so my point is this. I said to them, I would I would tell him we could never let him out and that he would have to spend the rest of his life here and that we, he would, we would make sure he had everything he needed to survive, but that this is where he was going to have to stay. And they said to me, why would you do that? And my answer to them was because the second that I wish to do him harm, the disease of hate and anger and violence that led him to this, he has now given to me. Why would I give him the power to make me hate him? Wow. Why would I give him that piece of me? Thanks for tuning in to part one of American Mysticism. Check out part two for the continuation of this discussion. <laughs>